Welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me as always is Ellie Jacobs, whose name contains a hidden letter that must forever remain secret to prevent him from being summoned and ritually bound. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and uh, urge you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Please do rate us. That's very important to us. And follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in fake with a PH. If President Trump, Trump can claim credit for inventing the word fake, we can claim credit for a new spelling. And we're also on Facebook. We'll also spell that with a PH. Yes, which um, Trump also invented. Yeah. For some context on that jab, uh, President Trump gave an interview to former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, uh, father of the current White House press secretary. During this interview, amongst the many, even for him, bizarre claims and things that he said, he also said, quote, I think one of the greatest of all terms I've come up with is fake. I guess other people have used it perhaps over the years, but I've never noticed it. Yes. Donald Trump has invented the word fake. There is a, a we're all, we the owned, trolled, and furious are all discovering the multiplicity of ways to be enraged by this man. And, and I'd like to think that most, if not all of them are essentially equal. So, you know, pick, pick whatever feels right to you at any given moment to be outraged about. But there is, there is a specific class of people, and I think, uh, Ellie, I think you belong to this. Uh, I think, Graham, if you're out there listening to this, I know you belong to, I know you belong to this group. Uh, for whom the president's insistence that he has invented words or concepts that, have, that clearly predate him by decades, if not hundreds of years, is the absolute thing that drives them up the wall. Yeah, I mean, being a member of that class, uh, to me, it basically boils down to there's a lot of things to be upset about. Some of them could lead to, you know, nuclear war with North Korea and we all die. Um, others could lead to, you know, just horrible regulatory changes and freedoms being denied people and the reconstruction of Puerto Rico not happening. Um, but this one particular one, I think, is like kind of small enough that I can like latch onto it and just be comfortable that that's the one thing I'm going to be furious about. Oh, absolutely. This is the kind of this kind of elite infantile solipsism is is really I mean, that, you know, it's the kind of thing you can really get your head around right. uh, and, and, and then really get your blood pressure up over. No, I don't you know, and I, I don't blame you. It's it's it is part and parcel of the of his broader assumption that everyone else who has ever been or is now is an idiot. Right. And only he. Yeah. 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 And only, yeah, that's exactly right. That every, every good idea in some way originated with him. It's, it's as if Louis XIV had, instead of being a, you know, a sort of political genius in his own way was actually just a, a, a kind of raving dullard. It's the same possible. Of narcissism, like the Sun King, you know, l'état yeah. moi, you know, c'est moi. All, you know, the, I mean, the same degree of just, yeah, of just raving megalomania and narcissism, but with none of the, uh, none of the, uh, the attached ability. It's, it's, yeah. it's powerful. It's heady stuff, man. It's heady stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go with, uh, in, you know, the land of the blind, the one eyed, the one eyed man is king. Who is Trump hanging around with? <laughs> if he thinks he's the smartest guy ever. Uh, 
in the land of the people who's, who, for whom the dude with no eyes has put out everyone else's eyes and also like insists that they can't hear a thing. Oh man, this is, this metaphor is getting, is really getting away. Well, no, maybe you've actually, maybe, maybe you've actually gotten to the bottom of it. it it's, it's uh, the kid in class who's not allowed to play with sharp objects because he's a danger to everybody around him. And Donald Trump is that child and he poked out everybody's eyes. Therefore he is the only one with eyesight still. He's the only one with eyesight left. Yeah, exactly. Except that would imply that he could see as well. Um, boy, it's, this is, this is a grim, this is a grim, grim start to, uh, to our return here. And I think we have a lot to be proud of. Um, <laughs> All right. Speaking of grim things, uh, here's, here, you know, you ready for this? All right. There was a piece in a piece. Solid I want to transition. No, man, <laughs> I'm getting, you know, I'm a little rusty, but I'm getting it back. There was a piece in the New York Times a couple of days ago that I want to bring to uh, the attention of uh, the core of Discovery, our, um, our lovely and, and much appreciated listeners. Uh, this, was, uh, this was on October 7th, the New York Times, written by Ken Vogel. Uh, the title is The Resistance Raising Big Money Upends Liberal Politics. And it's essentially a process piece about the way that uh, the resistance, hashtag resistance groups have raised money and how that uh, has affected the kind of the funding of the progressive ecosystem from the new groups to the established democratic institutions. Um, and it's, uh, there's some useful insight in here. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're a little bit inside the, the, if you're a little bit of an, of an insider in politics or, you know, you work in this field, a lot of it's going to be pretty familiar stuff. Uh, but the useful point is uh, even, you know, the, the sort of the nut of it or the nut graph of this is um, that the Democracy Alliance, which is uh, an organization, a sort of union, if you will, uh, or committee of, of major donors, uh, which is uh, in many respects, uh, this, the article describes them as having shaped the institutional left. I think that's fair. Uh, have steered, they steer a lot of money around uh, and around the, the progressive world. And this year that they have adopted some new policies uh, that will allow donors or encourage donors to give to uh, resistance groups uh, more readily than, than Democracy Alliance has in the past supported startups. That's kind of the essence of this piece and then how that's affected established groups like CAP and so forth. It's a good piece. I recommend reading it. Um, but it, 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 there are a couple of things here. It's a window into the functionality and dysfunctionality of the progressive donor universe that I think is just, is just worth uh, looking at for a second here. Uh, we, the, all this, this, you know, the, the idea of supporting the resistance groups, I think is really good. A lot of them are doing excellent work. The, you know, indivisibles uh, run for something arena. Some of these are, I mean, these are worthy organizations that I suspect are going to survive and do good work for a long time. Uh, so, you know, donors giving them money, I think is, is, is a terrific idea. Uh, and looking elsewhere outside of the democratic institutions, I think, is also a fair idea. Uh, we note that the DCCC has been raising money hand over fist. They're doing an excellent job on that because the, because congressional races or you know, donors are focusing their attention there for understandable reasons. It looks at like the houses in play. Uh, so it's not like all in, it's not like all democratic institutions are going begging during a time when the resistance is getting some money. Uh, but there has been a kind of skepticism, I think, on the part of major donors to give money to established, uh, you know, liberal organizations because these people they've given, you know, major donors have given established liberal, liberal organizations, you know, millions, collectively billions of dollars over the course of the last 10 years. And, and what the hell have we gotten for it? Uh, you know, I think is, is, is kind of their attitude. And I, you know, I can't say that I blame them. So to a certain degree, 
this is about looking for new ways and more effective ways of spending money. That's, that is all great. I would caution, all right, well, there is one thing in this article that, that gives me a sense of pause here. Uh, it's a quote from uh, uh, Albert Dwoskin, who's uh, a, a real estate developer in Virginia, has given a lot of money, I think, in, in Virginia politics in particular, also a major donor to national causes. Uh, this is the quote from the article. Uh, one major Democratic donor, uh, Albert Dwoskin, said the fluidity in the universe of liberal groups would cause some donors to sit on the sidelines, quote, to wait to see which ones have any legs whatsoever, end quote. Now, this from a, if you think about donors as investors, and in many respects they really are, this is not an unreasonable view, right? There's a lot of resistance groups out there. A lot of them have different ideas, different methodologies. Not all of them are going to survive the next two years. Not all of them are going to survive the year. Uh, many of them will, uh, but not all of them are going to survive. Some of them are going to die off. Some of them, I suspect, will probably end up being amalgamated with other groups and so forth. Right? They're, this is similar to something that happened after 2004. A lot of progressive organizations popped up in the wake of John Kerry's loss. Some of them are still around. A lot of them faded away. That's fine. But and and I speak to a degree out of personal experience here, and may, and and also leaning on the experience and the kind of the conversations that I have with other people who are you know around the Democratic donor space. There, the challenge for Democratic donors, and it's this seems to be in some respects more acute this year than it has been in the past. Oddly, is Democratic donors. Our major donors, you know, are are infamous for wanting for wanting a, a demonstrate a proven thing, a proven phenomenon, you know, something that they get that is proven to get results, a proven methodology, a proven organizational model, whatever, uh, and that will generate a quick return in the sense that like this is a thing that we know works and it'll help us win the next election. So there is risk aversion and short termism. In uh, in the kind of broader democratic funding universe, and I and this is you know I'm far from label from leveling this this accusation at every democratic donor. There's some very far sighted people out there who've, do, who've been doing some really interesting work, but for the most part, this is a complaint that I have heard many you know many times over the years, and I've heard it quite a lot this year uh, that everyone the donors are sitting on their money until the sure thing breaks out. This is qualitatively different. This is the point that I want to get to here. This is qualitatively different from the way that the Republican Party has built up the way it has built up its donor bench and the way its donors behave. That the approach that it has used over the last fifteen years, twenty years really, uh, has been largely guided by the Koch brothers' model, uh, based on the Koch brothers' model and run by the Koch brothers themselves. And their model has been to build a network of major donors and coach those major donors into donations for candidates at the local level for you know state house races state senate races secretary of state is an office that they have focused on uh, quite to to great effect for i think fairly obvious reasons secretaries of state uh, have some latitude in determining who's able to vote and who's not and the the idea is we want you republican donor to join us and to think about giving to different candidates and different organizations with the understanding that the life cycle of a of a of a Republican candidate that we think is going to be in a position to to make change someday for in the way that we want him to, uh, is likely going to involve a loss or two at the front. You know, the, these things may take a long time to mature. We may have people that we invest in that are that are at the state level, you know, in the state house for a long time, maybe for their entire careers, uh, and that's okay. They really take a very they're like an investment fund. Uh, an index fund for uh, Republican for local Republican candidates, 
it's been incredibly effective because it means that they are able to channel funding to candidates. You know, to, they, they have a wide field of candidates that are certainly funded. Many of them are trained. Many of them are supported throughout their careers. So if they lose, they don't they don't fade away, but they come back again. Uh, this is that kind of long term generational approach to politics is one of the reasons that. Uh, Republicans have won a majority of governorships. Uh, you know, they've won both chambers of the they've won both chambers of the uh, you know of, of the federal legislature, and critically, they've won. You know, the Democrats have lost more than a thousand seats at the state level uh, in the last ten years, and the Republicans are a few, are a scattered few thousand, scattered few hundred votes across the country from being able to call a constitutional convention. That long term generational approach is what has resulted in this. Donald Trump's election is. Well, you know, was in so you know was in some respects the culmination of that approach, not the you know not you know not not necessarily the start of it. It's the most obvious example of the Democratic slide, and a lot of that has been driven by the way that Republicans have given on a, on a generational plan guided by the Koch brothers. There are organizations amongst the resistance that are, I think, beginning to tackle some of this generational question of building you know building a, a long term progressive project in the way that the Koch brothers have done for Republicans. Uh, but there is no established organization that can that that is out there being able to show returns on that yet, because again, it's mainly the new groups that are thinking about doing this. And of course, that long-term generational project is by definition unproven because we haven't done it yet, and it is by definition unable to generate a short-term return because it's about long-term. It's about long-term support. Most of the people that a long-term, you know, a generational progressive project. Most of the candidates that a generational progressive project would support are going to lose the first time. That's just what happens. You you run for local office and you lose. It happened to Barack Obama. Uh, he ran for Congress in two thousand, got clobbered. Uh, so you know, people, you know, this until Democratic donors are, and and many of them are thinking in this way. So again, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but until Democratic donors think about supporting progressive candidates in the progressive infrastructure in a generational way and moves away from and develops some risk tolerance. So maybe it's a new methodology that isn't going to you know, develop some risk tolerance. We're going to bet on this methodology. If it doesn't work, that's fine. We're going to bet on this candidate. If they don't win, that's okay. Uh, and develop some long-term vision across the board. Uh, we're, we are not beginning, we are still fighting the Republicans on their turf. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add to this, uh, and we should we should move on. But uh, one idea I want to throw throw out there to you and to our listeners, if they want to chime in on Twitter or anything else, is the idea that we are at a donor generational shift, where the Clintons had their people um, who then kind of jumped on the Obama, Obama bandwagon briefly, but again, the Clintons were you know raising money from these people since the mid '80s, really since. Uh, President Clinton's third run at governor. Um, and those are the same people that donated to Hillary in 08 and Hillary uh, in 16. Um, the Obama group um, wasn't really a whole bunch of new people necessarily. There were small don smaller donor people that were involved. Bernie's people, like his big thing was that it's all small donor people. So I think some of the problem that the Democratic Party has, and this may be both the problem and a potential partial solution or vice versa, the solution that is the problem is that that next moneyed class hasn't come up. And the problem is that the members of that moneyed class that have come up to be those sorts of major donors are the Silicon Valley people who are exactly the people that you're talking about in terms of very, sh they see short term, they see, they want immediate impact. 
They want immediate. And I'm going to use the word because it's the word that they would use, even though I generally think when this word is used, you have lost whatever you're trying to do. They're trying to disrupt. And uh, until Democrats, you know, the problem is you need to win to demonstrate to people that you can win. And right now they can't win because they don't have any money and no candidates. That's that is a terrific that's a terrific point about the culture of particularly a lot of Silicon Valley major donors. Yeah, there is an expectation of disruption, and and this is again not to say that there isn't there needs well, to be partially room for, partially for that there for that kind of you know for innovation in in uh, in, tech, in politics, but that can't be that can't be what you're pursuing in the absence of building up a long term generational project for progressive candidates and infrastructure. Yeah. And then the only thing I'll add, and then we'll move on to the next topic is, um, that a lot of these people who got involved, got involved with Barack Obama and right there was the disruption force. So the only experience that they've had at this sort of level, they disrupted and they won and they expect that to happen every time. And Barack Obama was a flash in the pan for a variety of reasons. Candidates like that don't come along that often. So I, you know, I think one. I'm glad you brought up Barack Obama's election because one of the things that I think happened there is because of the many ways that 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 victory in 2008 has been interpreted. uh, You know, victory for you know for technology and data, which is part of the story, but obviously not the whole story. A victory for an organizing model, which is again part of the story, but not the whole whole story. There is an expect, but it's there is an expectation that you know, that, it, that we can pull, you know, the next data insight or the next tech insight or the next organizing model insight that we can pull that's, the, you know, that's out there and we're looking for the next thing that's going to completely disrupt and drive that wave. And and what happened was, yeah, there was a lot of great technique and a lot of great technology that went into OFA 2008. There's no question about that. And it was all, and it was surfing a wave that was the result of stru- of a, you know, a structural reaction to what was happening in national politics. Uh, that means that if you're just looking for a tool that will recreate 2008, you're not going to get it. You may get a, which is not to say there aren't good ideas out there. There are a bunch of them. They all should be funded, you know. So that you know, again, I'm not. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be critical of you know any Silicon Valley donor or any other donor who's thinking about who's thinking about supporting the new piece of tech or the new the new technique. But again, until we get back to understanding that there is a big dull, this is one of the problems that it's a big dull structure that underlies. Politics until we're playing at that level, a, gener- a, a long, dull generational project to support uh, progressive candidates and in infrastructure. Uh, yeah, we're you know we're playing we're playing the Republicans' game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so with that, um, speaking of movements that are uh, headless, is that a good way to put it? Um, I thought we could do one of our uh, hops across the pond in that we are on a ship. And uh, Frank, you, you may have some things to say about uh, Theresa May. So uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, in the Conservative Party's um, um, party meeting last week, uh, faced down a um, rush against her uh, premiership. And she also gave a speech during which she had a massive coughing fit and the background fell down. Yes, and a heckler gave her uh, a you know told her that, and a heckler turned up uh, turned up and handed tried to hand her a P forty five, which in Britain is is a pink slip. It's the thing you get when you're fired, uh, and said it was from Boris Johnson. So she had a, I mean, she had a not it was it was in many respects not a great speech, but they're not a great uh, not you know not a great speech from a, a sort very of bad no good day. It was a very bad no good day, uh, and and the the part that I absolutely loved is the you know the the part where you know, the sign behind her the letters started to fall off of it. So I mean the Tories are, if you ever wanted 
uh, a better re- a visual representation for what is apparently a real effect, which is the Tories' reputation for competency is beginning to erode. That was it. Now, the fun thing, what actually, you know, afterward, it appears that Theresa May, uh, you know, for the most part, there seems to be some data that voters didn't hold her cough against her, which, you know, I, I think, you know, is, is testament to the basic humanity of the British people. Uh, you know, I mean, anyone can get a cough, anyone can struggle through a speech, it was fine. Uh, but my favorite part, the thing that I really enjoyed was one of the themes of her speech was the British dream. We're going to talk a lot about the British dream. Uh, what is the British dream, you might ask? Uh, you know, well, Sunlight and food with flavor. Steak and kidney pudding. Yeah, no, that's exactly what, that, what, what is the British dream. It's exactly, you know, just, man, just a nice cup of tea. You know? yeah. <laughs> Crumpet or two. Yeah, these people know. That's exactly right. These people know what they are. Uh, so the, fortunately, the research firm BMG is here to help us. Uh, they uh, did a couple of focus groups immediately thereafter, uh, immediately after the conference speech, and came up with something that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, they asked about the British dream. So I'm going to read a little, read briefly from BMG uh, Research's uh, independent focus groups on, uh, on, the, on Theresa May's speech with respect to the British dream. Quote, Participants tended to be fairly bemused by Theresa May's continued reference to the British dream. Many participants were left scratching their heads about what a British dream may be. Some saw it simply as a crude ripoff of the Hollywood idealized imagery of the American dream and felt that the speech at times came across, came across as overly scripted and nostalgic. When asked how they would describe the British dream, all participants fell silent, with many reaching the conclusion that it didn't mean anything, and if it did, one size didn't fit all. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the dream of Britain is maybe it's alive, maybe it's dead. It's Schrodinger's dream, right? The British dream <laughs> may or may not be out there. It may or may not be a thing. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, stay tuned for this as we, you know, go questing to find the British dream. <laughs> I wonder how much Jim Messina played a role in the crafting of that speech and the dream narrative. You know, it's an interesting question uh, because this does feel like something that, an, and I say this as an American who's, who's worked in politics in Britain. It does Jim, like Jim is, sorry, Jim Messina, to those of you who don't follow this stuff quite as closely as we do, Jim Messina was uh, Barack Obama's 2012 campaign manager, um, has since gone on to a very successful uh, run as a political consultant across the pond. And here, uh, first he worked for David Cameron. Uh, did he work on the stay campaign? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. it's, so it's, that didn't work out so well. Yeah, through not as not in my understanding, not as a consultant to uh, remain, but for the Conservative Party during the process. Yeah, I might be wrong about that. If anyone of you you're listening and, and and remember what his relationship there was, uh, you know, please by all means clarify. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. now he's been working for Theresa May. Yeah, yeah. He works for the Conservative Party. Uh, I I don't know actually the effect of which there there has been some degree of shuffle with, I do know this, that there's been some degree of shuffle within the power structure of the conservative party about who's setting their, their political direction uh, since the disaster uh, of the, of the snap election in back in June. Uh, so this, and I know that British dream is something that has a, it's not something that simply an American would have been able to impose. It has a constituency within the conservative party, um, both among some MPs and among some staff members, whether that, whether even they understand what it is, or whether they just sort of assume that it sounds, whether it just sounds good to them, is not entirely clear to me. Uh, but it does, it, you know, I will say it does sound sort of 
The odd thing is, I think she probably could have gotten up, said what the British dream was, and by virtue of the fact that no one has a defined idea, her audience probably would have gone along with it. Uh, but this is just sort of a good lesson that if you're going to get up and talk about an abstract concept, uh, you might want to give it some definition. Pro tip for, uh, you know, for you budding candidates out there, you can't get up and say the whatever dream and then not say what the dream is. It's okay to let people know what, that, what, what you're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, before we move on, just Frank, I want to throw a couple questions at you about this. So um, she's obviously on, on shaky ground in terms of her leadership position after the snap election and kind of the disaster that we've spent a lot of time talking about in the past. Um, there was threats that there was going to be a run at her um, at this party convention. And the idea is that the reason she escaped is because Boris Johnson is, you know, essentially on deck and no one wants him in charge. And then there are people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who the New York Times chose to profile uh, just last week. Yeah, yeah. There's there is no obvious successor, uh, and and you're right. I mean, I mean Boris Johnson is sort of. It's interesting. If Boris Johnson ever becomes the leader of the Labour Party, or the leader of the Labour Party, that'll be quite a day. Uh, if he ever becomes the leader of the Conservative <laughs> Party, um, you know, I mean, what's going to give the man a shot? I mean, you know, I'm sure I mean, it's, if Boris it, Johnson became the leader of the Labour Party, he would find a way to talk about Labour politics in an appealing way in about three weeks. Maybe yeah. yeah. Um, the man is a is, is a much better retail political athlete than he's given credit for being, uh, because he spends most of his time running around looking like a toddler who's escaped from his mother, and. <laughs> So, you know, or, or, you know, our father, forgive me. I'm, you know, I would, it's, I, I need to tighten up on that anyway. So <laughs> I will say this, like if he ever becomes the leader of the conservative party, a party will very rarely have gone so reluctantly into its leadership um, than Boris Johnson's. He is recognized. I think, I think this is a fair assessment. British listeners, by all means, I speak under correction, being recognized as one of the few people who is capable of giving, uh, Giving cons- of presenting conservatism in a way that is sort of appealing and interesting and memorable, maybe the only frontline politician they have who could do that right now, uh, that's currency at a time when the conservative party appears to be adrift. And yet what you said is right. Very few people in the conservative party leadership actually like him very much. Yeah. Uh, for a variety of some of it's some of it's old school, you know, eaten, you know, eaten. Right. Right. And some of it is, you know, he's resented because he's a showboat for being a showboat, which he is. And all this other stuff, but the reason that Theresa May is in power, still in power now, uh, and and will remain so, I think, for a while, is that the Conservative Party is so riven over how to handle Brexit that neither camp has thrown up a successor. Right. No, no one knows who's going to succeed her, so she's in power until they can until one side wins, one side of Brexit prevails, uh, and that God knows when that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, America is not the only place. It's, it's not the only place that's indulging in the dumbest timeline right now. I'll tell you that for nothing. Yeah. Speaking of dumbest timeline, um, and we're really not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this today. Um, and we mean that seriously, um, partially because uh, no decisions have been announced, partially because neither Frank nor I, um, despite being reasonably well versed on some of this stuff, uh, we have friends who are much, much more uh, intelligent and, well, intelligent, yes. And, uh, oh, much, yes, absolutely. Much, much more um, in the details uh, on it. But uh, we want to just briefly brush on uh, the Iran deal uh, because there is a very strong likelihood uh, at this point. I don't know that there's any doubt that in this speech that President Trump plans to give on uh, Thursday, I believe, on the 12th, um, he will announce that he is um, decertifying. Um, and to give people clarification on what all these different terms mean, 
um, several weeks ago, he uh, certified that they were in compliance with what they needed to do for the deal. That was, uh, that's part of just the general way that the joint comprehensive plan of action is written. There's the second set of things that every 90 days, the president has to go to Congress and say that they are in compliance with the deal, that it is in the national security of the United States to continue being in the deal. And there's been no, no material breaches um, in, in, in the deal. So uh, he's going to say that it is no longer in the national security interest of the United States to remain in the deal. He's going to say that uh, they are breaking the spirit of the deal. Um, and that's an important factor because according to multiple um, intelligence agencies uh, and you know, from around the world, um, including the Israelis, uh, there has been no material breach of what they agreed to do. Um, we're not going to relitigate whether it's a good deal, bad deal, better deal, worse deal, all that shit. We're not going to relitigate that because none of that really matters right now. The only issue is, is that this week, if the president decides he has to make the determination to Congress on the 15th, um, if he decides to decertify the deal, essentially the, what happens immediately is then Congress, the Senate, the same group of ass clowns who couldn't get their heads up, heads up out of their asses to figure out health care, won't be able to figure out taxes, um, essentially you know, can't find a door um, out of a closet. Um, these we'll have the guys, they're going to unfuck the, the Near East starting with Iran. Yeah. I see no problem with this plan. Yeah. They have 60 days uh, to determine to uh, put back in the secondary sanctions that were waived by um, the, by the Iran deal. Uh, those are the much stricter sanctions than were just the UN sanctions. These are the ones that remove Iran from uh, the international banking sector um, and a whole bunch, whole host of other things. The idea being is that, Trump will decertify. Congress will have 60 days. The underlying concept through all this is that Congress will actually vote to keep the to continue waiving the sanctions because they don't want to give the Iranians any reason to walk away from it. But it, the hope is, is that it pushes the Iranians to the table along with the British and the French and the Germans and the Chinese and the Russians, none of whom have any appetite whatsoever to start having these conversations about the Iran deal again, uh, to push to change uh, three primary aspects of the deal. The first and foremost is to get rid of the sunset clauses. And there's a lot of misunderstanding around the sunset clauses. We won't go into that right now. Uh, but be sure that Iran doesn't get the opportunity to build a nuclear weapon in eight years. Uh, the second thing that they want to uh, address is the ballistic missile testing. And the third thing is just Iran's general um, assholy nature, nefarious activities throughout the world, whether that's Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan or anywhere else. Uh, so those are the three things that the Trump administration wants to relitigate with our P5 uh, partners, uh, none of whom have shown any appetite. The French slightly, uh, the Russians and the Chinese have said, fuck off. Uh, the British have essentially said the same thing and the Germans, who knows? Um, but essentially, the 12th could trigger a 60-day conversation in the Senate when they should be focused on health care and tax reform and infrastructure and rebuilding Puerto Rico and Texas. Yeah, this is going, I mean, it, it, yeah. This is it, dumbest this, timeline America. This is going to be a shit show. Yeah, dumbest this timeline America at its, absolute, at its best. Yeah, absolute shit show. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I mean, the, that that was a great summary of this thing. I have, I have, you know, not much to add to that except that the idea that this Congress is somehow going to be able to find its way to a solution. The, the idea that this ends up with that this that either via this Congress or or via um, a conversation with everyone else who was originally part of uh, you know part of the joint program. You know, the idea that that will somehow result in a in a better deal. Uh, it's absolutely fucking ludicrous. It is completely insane. Like this is the this is the deal that we've got now for a reason. It's a, it's it is again we're not going to relitigate its merits. It has some, and more to the point, it's the one that we actually have right now. Um, I think there is a a very real possibility in this that every other actor who is part of this deal could essentially continue with it as if the United States doesn't exist. Which is essentially what uh, Foreign Minister Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif uh, said when he was in New York at a couple um, yeah. at a couple interviews. That's essentially what he said: "Is you know, we're just going to keep doing this because mm-hmm. it's working out for us with everybody else." Yeah. Um, and the idea is, my understanding, and I could be wrong on this. Um, again, smart listeners, we won't out anybody, but you know who you are um, on this topic. Um, my understanding is, is that Trump is going to kick this to the Senate with the hope that McConnell won't even bring it to the floor. This, this is a great plan. I love everything about this plan. Yeah. I see no way this doesn't work out well. This, this is awesome. Yes. Yeah, because what's, because if, if the, if the past few months have taught us anything, it's the things on Capitol Hill are proceeding very predictably right now. Yes. Yeah. And when you throw Tom Cotton into the mix. Oh yeah. I'm, I, that, that right there. Oh man, Tom Cotton. Been too long since we've heard from that guy. Yeah, we 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 will we will repo we will retweet a uh, article that uh, Jason Stanford, the Commodore, uh, Frank and I wrote, um, which we we it was uh, Tom Cotton's follow up letter to his borderline Logan Act defying letter to the Ayatollahs uh, back in 2015. What do you mean borderline? No, that's yeah, it's it is. Okay, it is a funny piece, thanks to uh, particularly to Jason's uh, sensibilities. So, yeah, I mean, this Tom Cotton is, I mean, this, you know, that is the, really the last shoe to drop on any discussion of Iran. Uh, you know, really all, all hope for, for, you know, sense and reason has, has abandoned us when, when, you know, when he uh, un- unburdens himself of his own views, and he has. Yes, he has. Um, well, speaking of wanton destruction and things that people should really be focusing on, um, and we're going to keep this episode a little bit short. Again, uh, our schedules are a little messy uh, for the next couple of days, weeks, or week, really. Uh, but we will get an- another episode up early next week. Uh, but one last thing that we want to talk about is uh, Puerto Rico, um, where 47% of people now have running water, I think, was the number I saw. Or is that people who have electricity and 10% have water? Yeah, Either way, it's still the shit show. Yeah, I mean, this is <clears> – <throat> so we won't go over what has happened. It was subjected to something out of the Old Testament. Uh, and the response was was typical. Uh, so we've missed it. We basically – we haven't been talking about this uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. Most of you will have seen – the response of this, you've seen Trump getting into a fight with the mayor of, of San Juan, picking you know, because a woman of color doesn't, does, you know, dares to call him on his behavior. Well, he, he threw paper towels to people. Yeah, he threw, yeah, he, oh my God, right? Like that was, that was one of the most, I mean, the response has been one of the most grotesque things we've ever seen. There's no point in going over that, particularly my expectation is that most of the people listening to this podcast are as disgusted as we are. I do, however, want to point out one particular element of this that I think is relevant, particularly on the back of Oxfam's condemnation of the American response, which when Oxfam is coming out and calling you a punk uh, and you are the government of the United States, you have fucked up. 
there's no other way to look at it. Uh, so the response has been, they have deemed the response woeful and inadequate. They're hundred percent correct. I want to focus on a couple of the first, the even leaving aside Trump's individual bizarre behavior during all of this, uh, the money that is, that is slow in coming uh, and the actual physical aid that was slow in coming uh, because again, you know, Puerto Rico is in, a, in the middle of a very big ocean apparently uh, because, you know, like the biggest, you know, I guess, I guess we have, I guess the United States has only just recently discovered the age of sail. Uh, okay. So the aid that was slow in coming, the Jones Act, uh, which had to be waived in order to be able to get aid there, and eventually was waived after a delay, uh, and then recent, and then a request uh, food stamp waiver that would allow Puerto Ricans uh, with food stamps to use food stamps uh, to purchase ready food during this humanitarian crisis. That waiver was granted in you know the Jones Act was waived in Florida, it was waived in Texas. Uh, the food stamp waiver was granted in Florida, it was granted in Texas. It was granted quickly. It took a while to get both of those things done in Puerto Rico. And, and the only way that, like, I, that I can look at this is in the way that institutions, particularly white institutions, uh, treat, uh, treat people of color. I mean, this is one of, the, one of the tools of power is to deny people of color something to which they are entitled strictly because you can with a kind of attitude that with a, you know, the sort of attitude that, uh, you know, well, you know, you don't get this. Okay. Well, we'll grant it. We, you know, we'll grant you this thing now after a delay, just so you don't think you're going to get away with anything. The assumption of mistrust, the assumption of, you know, ulterior motives, the assumption that this system is going to be abused or that you're asking for something you're not entitled to. This is, you know, the classic behavior of an, of an institution that is, you know, white dominated and, you know, and is, you know, is, is, you know, attempting to, you know, further repress, uh, you know, a community of color, which Puerto Rico obviously is. These are American citizens. And yet here we are. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I bring this up. Um, it's a somber point, but it's a relevant point that this is one of, it's a small example in the midst of this, again, Old Testament devastation, but it's a really telling example of the kind of people who are making these decisions. This is some old school Bull Connor bullshit. Uh, and that's, that's what's at the heart of all of this stuff. And we shouldn't forget it. Yeah, that kind of summed it up, Frank. Uh, we uh, will continue to urge our listeners to give generously to uh, the Red Cross and any other charities. Uh, we particularly like um, Project Rubicon and the St. Bernard Project, um, all of whom are working in all of these places. Um, UNICEF is giving. UNICEF has a, has a is doing good work in Puerto Rico. So is Unidos for Puerto Rico, uh, United for Puerto Rico. You can, you can yeah. it's, is the website. And if you can't Puerto remember Rico. any of these, uh, just give money to the President's Fund. Uh, the, all the former presidents have banded together to uh, raise money for all these uh, hurricane um, uh, hurricane hit areas. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to keep this a little bit short this week. Uh, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. And that's uh, taking ship, ship with a P as in parlor or parlay even. Um, And uh, we promise we will get better at Facebook if you ask us really nicely. And with that, Frank, where are we headed? We take ship this week for France, where shepherds in Lyon this week drove a flock of hundreds of sheep through the middle of the town to protest government inaction in the face of wolf attacks to protest government inaction in the face of wolf attacks. Now, normally, we don't concern ourselves with such purely terrestrial affairs. It's got to be at least a little bit soggy for taking ship to get interested. But we cannot, we must not, and we will not stand idly by when mutton is on the line. 
And if our reading of children's stories is right, the powers that be must offer a reward, uh, half the kingdom seems to be the going rate, to the hero or heroes who shall slay the beasts and end their reign of terror. Uh, but before that hero arrives, there's usually a couple of jokers who swagger boldly into the night and uh, realize too late how totally unprepared they are for what they're facing. Uh, and that is a role uh, to which no one is better suited than us. Uh, we're sure the hero will eventually rescue us or failing that we'll get eaten by wolves, which is pretty much the usual spread of outcomes for us on any given week. Friends, fair stands the wind for France. Take care, everybody. <laughs>